Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. Uh, you're at home? <laughs> I am at home, but you're not at home. No, I'm still in uh, Tawada. In, uh, Tawada. In the north of Japan. And I, I see you've been on like a lot of bullet trains. These bullet trains have really awkward noses. I feel like yeah, it's like why are they the, designed that? They look way? like dolphins. Yeah, well, it's it, not it's, a, it's not attractive. It's like you know, it's like someone with a big nose. And the, but in a way, it's kind of like uh, should I? I don't know what to say. I don't. I shouldn't say this, but I'm trying to think of of, of stars that have big noses and <laughs> like actors. And I was going to say well, like, like Barbara Streisand. the Barbara Streisand. <laughs> yes, that's what no. I was it's say. more like a dolphin, which is a, a aerodynamic, <laughs> a water dynamics shape, and it's just efficient mm. how it moves through water. And uh, but Barbara Streisand wears her nose well anyway, so I, I, they seem awkward to me. The the bullet train noses. I don't know. Really. I don't know. They seem so mm-hmm. futuristic. To yeah, me. like you know, because they do. If the future was ugly, I think. <laughs> no, I don't know. I guess uh, <laughs> agree to disagree. But uh, the I will say this: yeah. um, it is the most amazing train. It is really the best train experience. So that what, what I had never seen. Um, one thing that always I like in Japan is that every small task is is executed perfectly so the, <laughs> the the train the train arrives on time of course and then there's a whole cleaning staff they all wear the same uh, red jumpsuit and they greet all the the passengers 10 minutes before the train leaves they, they stand in front of you in a row and then they enter the train and clean and it's almost like a dance when they're cleaning they're going very fast but they're jumping around it's very cartoony <laughs> and uh then they all exit and they all hold a little trash bag and it's perfectly wrapped and they bow mm. to the passengers and then you can enter. And uh, I don't know. I really appreciate that kind of uh, effort and uh, right. attention. It's like detail. a little performance even, uh, around every corner. You know, I yeah, have what, what I mean, it's a resurfacing uh, topic, efficiency, but there's something about efficiency mm. going too far and just being like, yeah, just let's just get one grumpy person because we're not going to pay for ten people, and it's going to take an hour, and he's going to be really mean, and he's going to shout at mm. you because he's underpaid, and this just seems like a, a, a better way. Let me ask you this: If those people were robots, would uh, that be as good? It, I, no, it, it just the Shinkansen reminds me of what I imagine air air travel was like in the sixties. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. A friend of mine was telling proud me to that be, people yeah. people are proud to be part of an organization. It's like, well, this is the best train in the world, and everyone at every level is excited to be part of this. Mm. Yeah, a friend was telling me something. Gave me an interesting uh, kind of comparison because I was thinking about should I take the bus, the train, or the plane back from Syracuse, New York, when I was where I was a few weeks ago, <clears throat> and he said the bus is in the past. Um, the train is in the present, and the and but and planes are in the future. But the train that you are on, and, and and so he's like, you know, buses are stuck in the past. Don't sit, don't sit on a bus, kind of thing. It's a horrible way to travel. The, a plane is an aspirational way to travel, and a train is just right. But one of the things um, I was thinking is that train though is really m- very much in the future, right? Well, maybe now in China they have the fastest trains, but this train for a long time was the world's fastest train. uh, From Tokyo to Tawada, uh, I looked on the map, it's seven and a half hours by car, 
and it was three mm-hmm. hours by train. Mm, okay. So, yeah. Uh, it, I mean, the only yeah. high-speed trains I've taken are the German ICE trains and the British Virgin trains. But I don't yeah. think they're as fast. No, no. But so I, I, I do has, like trains in general. Like, uh, if if I have a choice, even if it takes a bit longer than flying, I I like the there's no security and you can sit down, you can walk around, and there's a little cafe in, in the train, and uh, I like the experience. Ooh. What I this that's not what today's episode is about. But what I do like about trains is that they allow you to um, work. Like the way they've advertised themselves of late is, it's the only mode of transportation that allows you to continue working. <laughs> it's you know party to our conversation last week, but it's like you. Well, it's definitely really more how, space in, to work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's like in, in the Netherlands, you know, we've trains done everything are to make this the, the ideal place to read. It's funny. Oh, really? In the Netherlands, they have a whole line of books they release with the train company, and hmm. novelists will do short stories specifically for the train. It's really uh, marketed as a relaxing space. Maybe not anymore. Maybe nowadays it's a. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. When I grew up, it was but all about, about reading in the train. Maybe that's a good segue, though, which is like, you know, thinking about spaces and what they're built for. And in art, there are different kinds of spaces. And you're in Japan right now because you have your first ever museum show, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and a museum is like sort of a different Kawada kind of art center. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a um, it's not a traditional museum in the sense that they don't have a collection, but they have a lot of uh, large uh, installations or video works or large sculptures. Um, so it's a little bit hard to explain, but there's a few Japanese institutions where the institution is built on a very strange architecture. So the the architecture Mm. dictates the kind of work that's shown. It's not a traditional museum with just concrete floor and white walls and it's big and no windows. This is more like narrow and then wide and then a long space and then a tall space and uh, inside and outside and uh, yeah. I don't know if that's weird. That's the way, um, like a lot of critique against museums that have overinvested in architecture in the last decade. A lot of the critique is that this is not a space for art. What we need is a white cube, and you're bringing us, you mm-hmm. know, because architects are like, yeah. you know, very selfishly into them, yeah. se- their their architecture I, I, as the artwork. Yeah, I was thinking the Guggenheim about being that, the best example of that. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that, and it, it, what's the ideal museum, and should every museum be? But I really appreciate museums being different and being statements. So I, I think it's difficult if you live in the city and the city that the museum that is in your city doesn't fit what you want. Mm-hmm. But if you have the luxury to travel and see different museums around the world, it's really nice that it doesn't become like McDonald's and every museum is the same. But I think, yeah, you're bringing up a good point already, which is, you know, a lot of museums. So I don't know, we're going to talk about museums. There's so many different angles on museums. But one of the trends in museum culture generally has become the touring exhibition and the Disneyfication of the museum, starting with the sort of like the, you know, Bilbao kind of uh, Guggenheim complex. This idea that like a tour, you know, an exib- uh, like you can attract people with destination architecture that's not ideally suited to de- or designed for artists or artwork or even community. And people will come from outside the city to visit that museum. And then when you get to that museum, you'll see a show which has probably been in every other museum at every other major city. It's a very bizarre. It's a very bizarre aesthetic that's emerged. Um, and yeah. of course, there's been a lot of but, institutional but, uh, critique. And it's kind of boring, but. 
But it, it, what roles did museum play in your life growing up and forming your creative mind? Mm -hmm. I think the earliest memory I have of a museum, of course, is like the science museums uh, that you would go to as a, you know, with your class. And it was more like a boring place to go. <laughs> and there might mm. be like one exciting thing. Like in my memory, it was this thing called the bat cave at our local museum. It was like you could run in the dark with your friends and there'd be bats everywhere. You know, it was just like, it, which is ridiculous. I got no that education. Fun. <laughs> it was just a fun place to go, but also full of a certain <laughs> but amount did of stuff. Did your parents take you to see art? Did your parents um, show you art museums? It's interesting because I don't have that many memories of it. Yes, but we did go to the National Gallery quite often as a child growing up um, in Canada. That's our like big gallery in our capital in Ottawa. Um, but we didn't do it on a regular basis. My parents were very busy professionals, so they didn't uh, actually okay. take us almost okay. anywhere. Yeah, so <laughs> that yeah. would be like well, modern for us childhood. it would be. We would often go in Amsterdam, and then uh, if we traveled, we would see the museum wherever we went. Mm -hmm. um, But the, the reason I'm saying, I just remember as a child, um, you don't know much yet about art, you know about cartoons, you know things on TV, and then all of a sudden you're in this building without furniture. It's very strange to be in a building without <laughs> furniture. And and then everyone tells yeah. you, well, this is art, these are very important works. And it's, of course, you're very young, you, you have no material to compare it with. So I feel like your artistic being is, is formed greatly at that moment where maybe you'll have repeated visits with your school to the museum in your city and you're like oh i never thought that paintings could also be figurative and abstract and hang in the same room and maybe mm -hmm. those things those decisions and you're like oh uh, maybe you can pursue a life in that direction and it's almost like a sports team and that the collection of your city uh, it forms your th artistic thinking and then it um yeah i, I really I just remember a lot of works in the Stalick Museum that made a big impact on me, and then seeing them again 20 years later is very interesting. It, yeah, yeah I think it, you're, you're very. We you're talked very about lucky this with way. with, but we talked about this in the aging episode that things hit you very hard when you don't have that much uh, when your brain is not so full yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, I said had I think you're very lucky that you had those experiences. For me, I my early experiences were more around working because I started. to I started designing when I was 12 or 13. And so a lot of my... <laughs> That's child labor, right? <laughs> a lot of my life was early experiences are around being an entrepreneur and business. Um, <laughs> Your dad was <laughs> like, we got a deadline, Jeremy. Stop watching cartoons. <laughs> Actually, that's very much how it was. But, you know, like the, <laughs> the like clients were, like client, my dad would bring clients. work home for me to pay. Come on, on Bailey. Like that. <laughs> But my earliest memory of museums wasn't until I got to college. And then I, I, the first piece I remember standing out to me, well, there was like a Yoko Ono piece, which was just a phone. And then like, if you picked up the phone, like she was on the other end of the line. <laughs> and then there was like a, there was also like a Klaus Oldenburg, Oldenburg at the, at the AGO, which is our gallery here in Toronto. That was like a giant hamburger that they still have that was made out of pillows. And I was like, whoa, what is that giant hamburger? You know, it was like kind of pretty basic stuff. Yeah. Um, And it didn't really strike me that it was important, actually, um, until later I th on. I feel like, yeah, I feel like we're. Uh, it it kind of shows that it's often said, that, oh, it's important to bring children to the museum and expose them. And I'm always a bit annoyed when I see children in a museum because they're loud. 
and I just want a, a quiet experience. But now I understand that why it's important. Just us talking right now is like because you have such an emphasis uh, <laughs> not on artworks but the social aspects of art and uh, maybe it's it's yeah uh, and, on, and on labor and politics and and yeah so I think that that's actually yeah. has a lot to do with how I was brought up. Like what's familiar yeah. to me is like the struggle how for how is this useful. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But you know, it's funny because my father, even in that context, always emphasized concept as the most important. So he was a conceptual designer. And so conceptual art was the first art that made sense to me. Um, mm -hmm. And then like social practice yeah. art made a lot of sense to me because I could tie it back to uh, labor and politics. But you're right. Yeah, those first experiences do, do, do you matter. Do you, I, uh, do you enjoy, um, let's see, is, is there any... Historical period that you feel close to. If you go to the the Met or a big oh, yeah. uh, or the Louvre and and there's a yeah yeah is there for any sure. o like it, an older it, like I mean very, more very than two hundred years old but oh no <laughs> like the work that I'm really really feel close to is 1970s video art and 1960s Fluxus art um, and okay. I can like. But I could you tell don't you have an everything. affinity for for African masks or uh, Egyptian tombs or uh, kimonos or uh, what's your what's your feeling when you walk past those rooms? I, I'd be like, "Where's the Namjoon Pike kind of thing?" <laughs> like, what, okay. Tell me when television gets a, you know becomes a part of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I mean, I'll tell you one exception to that, which is abstract expressionist. Uh, film and abstract expressionism in the early days before it got like um, expressionist in the kind of Bo Jackson Pollock sense while during the visual music period of abstract expressionism that really uh, resonated with me because there was this sort of scientific pursuit um, among a, a generation of artists that were trying to do or uncover they were trying to innovate you know transform do what music did for or how music evolved to like have its own Uh, non-representational form. They were trying to do the same thing for yeah, art yeah. as if it was reverse engineering the brain. And that idea of reverse engineering really appealed to me uh, in some way. Okay. That so I, I had like the exact a, conversation like a, yesterday at, at the museum. The a journalist was asking me, what What are you trying to say with your work? And I was like, well, it's about energy and I want an emotional response and I, I don't have a pre-subscribed notion. And she had a hard time following. And then it's like, well... It's a lot like music, and uh, the, the the musician puts a certain energy into it. Doesn't mean you have to feel the same thing, and that made it mm -hmm. clear immediately. So, it, ah. it it is interesting that 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 uh, maybe what I'm trying to say is it's it's very museums can be intimidating for people, but when you start comparing it to music, it opens up a, a more uh, innocent viewing. Yeah, you're making a good point. So, like. We've all gone to a museum with, with a child, and that child could be 10 years old. That child could be like 40 years old, like someone that doesn't actually, you know, understand the context. And, you know, I can remember on several occasions bringing friends, family, or partners to the museum, and then like having them ask me questions, and then me being like, "Oh my God, you don't understand how exciting this is," and 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 walking them through a survey exhibition of a period that I really cared about, and telling them the whole story about how that that came to be. And I think museums actually serve, you know, they have a certain amount of power to do that. Like I can even remember like just very recently that, you know, the new Whitney opened and they had that survey of American art that people were somewhat critical of, but I was like very excited by the exhibition because you don't often get all of these like 
staple works right next to each other. I mean, you do in, in certain museums, right? But like, it's still a real treat for me to walk in and see the history right there in person and to like yeah. talk about the little details with someone. It's it, it's so funny that, that uh, we're, we live in such an on-demand time that you can listen to any song ever made whenever you want on any device. And that's very normal. Mm. Um, and so if you want to listen to the highlights of American pop culture and, and uh uh, or his, listen to the history of rock and roll or jazz or whatever you want to do. It's really easy. But then with museums, you have to be lucky that you're in the town at that moment when they're showing that collection. Yeah, and, but, uh, but one of the things that's really interesting about America is compared to Canada, at least I can compare, and you can tell me if this is the same in Europe, but because America had this history of pi- private patronage, that is people buying and collecting art, there are a lot of really small, um, excellent museums. The most famous in the U.S. was the Barnes Collection because of all kinds of controversies, and uh, it, that which is in Philadelphia or outside of Philadelphia. Now it's in Philadelphia. Anyway, it's a whole other story. But basically, like the small American city, almost every small American city has a great museum. I remember when I was in school in yeah, Syracuse, yeah. you wouldn't expect Syracuse to have a great museum, but the Everson <laughs> Museum at one point and still does have one of the best video art collections in the in the country. Yeah, no, but um, as, for example, movies, people are going to the theater less and the home theaters are getting better, the screens are getting Mm -hmm. better, and art just persists as this thing that you go to, and I really like that about art, that uh, there's this element of, Mm -hmm. uh, to me, it it has a, what museums are for me is it's, it's almost like a, not everybody thinks the same at a museum, but it's almost in every city you can go there and there's a certain... You know how a lot of, when you travel, a lot of things could be a tourist trap. But museums, to mm-hmm. me, have a certain level that the food will not be horrible. Uh, you will be treated quite nice. A lot of things are free. Uh, there will be interesting books and, uh, and a little bit of different You'll be intellectually actually stimulated, yeah. Yeah, yeah and... and, and um, yeah, to me, also working now with the museum, it feels like you're part of a religion or a, a, almost a humanist mission. And uh, if you're working mm-hmm. together with a museum, so yeah, I, and I'm sure there's a lot of people on a on a far right side of the spectrum who think museums are horrible enclaves mm. of of liberal people. But it, you know, it, it, it's not exactly dictating how you have to think. But there's a nice thing about going to any part of the world and the, knowing that there's a museum there. Yeah, what might surprise people, because so you and I do work with museums, and I'm working on a commission for a museum right now. What people might not realize is how uh, small the teams usually are at museums, how small the curatorial staff is, the production staff. I yeah, mean, it ad- yeah. usually adds up, but the average, let's just take an example. I'm working at the MCA right now, which is in Chicago, Museum of Contemporary Art, and they have a staff of, I think, 180 or 200, but the curatorial staff is like less than five. And that, you know, that means the people that are actually nurturing and like helping the artists is are it's a very tight knit team usually, and you're working pretty much hands on yeah. with them for you know a year, two years, sometimes well, longer. I, I think also what you yeah what you feel is that everybody's sacrificing for a greater good, and uh, um, because mm-hmm. the, everybody basically everybody in art is underpaid except for a few people, but everybody <laughs> accepts that because there's a higher purpose of uh, this research of perception. And thinking that everybody cares about more than uh, having financial stability or a big car or whatever, so th- everybody's on the same page. That to me, that's uh, yeah. 
interesting there seating. are a couple big seats usually at the table but otherwise um you know yeah pretty, pretty much it's people who are passionate the other thing is they're usually passionate about a re- research like a specific thing thread of research that they're carrying through their career and then the thing that i think is interesting a point that we probably have to bring up is that there has been a trend towards museums paying less uh to artists um and toward artists becoming kind of having this role of being patrons of museums, like donating their work to the museum for that, how are the, in that purpose of higher good being part of how the museum positions that as like, Hey, we're not, we're a not for profit. So we can't, and we can't afford to, um, to provide a larger fee than, than such and such or whatever. Or we, we have a fixed yeah, budget. It, 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 that works out for artists who primarily make objects because the, the, the value of their works uh, it uh, gets higher the more they show in museums, but mm-hmm. if you're a performance artist, then uh, you're out of luck. Yeah, so I've been in museum shows before that were survey exhibitions where no one no one was paid a dime, and you know most of the artists that were showing were like fine with that because their private galleries uh, were gonna is gonna raise their profile significantly, and the private gallery and them were both gonna benefit. But then the performance artists would get really anxious and upset because. Politically speaking, they've been waiting for this museum opportunity. Like they, you know, they've been like making every sacrifice throughout their career on this bet that an institutional show will eventually carry them um, forward. Because the only people that traditionally collected experimental work, uh, the most experimental work anyway, was collected by museums traditionally. That's uh, not necessarily uh, still the case, but kind of is. But the thing is, they're not really in a position yeah. to collect. They're, they're more in a position I, I, I think to accept donations. It is funny that a lot of people critique museums for uh, being old-fashioned in their collecting. Uh, but then mm-hmm. uh, all my friends who, who I, I've said this before on the podcast, I'll, I'll be at a net artist's home and we'll, we're talking about like, oh, collectors don't want to buy websites. And yeah. then you look around their walls and it's all drawings and photos. It's like, what yeah. do you expect? Yeah, yeah. I'm not actually critical at all because my position, as you know, is is one where I I believe that if the artist's intent is to be conceptual, and they're they're probably in a space where they're also uh, counteracting the commodification of art, uh, and therefore, like, if they want to earn revenue, then that has to be part of the concept of the work, in my opinion. Um, and they can't ignore that. And of course, you see artists now exploring blockchain to do that and stuff. And and to ignore that is like potentially like antithetical to being conceptual artist. I would argue, in an era where culture and commodity are kind of the same thing. Mm. But uh, mm. that's kind yeah. of a radical position, I guess. And then uh, um, not that many. And and then as, aside from uh, uh, money and uh, organization. What, what museums come to mind with, where you had great experiences as a viewer? Oh, the Hirshhorn, uh, by and large, like is one of my favorite museums in the world, which is in Washington, D.C. It's a very small, quirky museum, but they, ha- they have an excellent curatorial staff and they put on some, you know, uh, some of my the most memorable exhibitions. I was uh, that the, even that mm. men- I was mentioning the abstract expressionist kind of visual music stuff. They had a show there like 15 years ago that I still remember called Visual Music. I have the catalog. But every every time I'm in D.C., I go there, and I think it's fantastic. I think the yeah, Shedlick so, that you mentioned is also good. But and, and, uh, What's yours? Do you, do you feel like... Um, 
One thing that I've noticed is that museums are getting really busy, and a place like MoMA is really, it's not really possible to view the art. It's really that busy. It's it's like Black Friday every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I have very so little what's interesting um, interest to me, in... Sorry, I, I, MoMA seems to me like McDonald's, though, a little bit. Uh, there's a, they have great exhibitions, too, the temporary exhibition. I've seen a lot of nice works, but just the thought of going there and that train station and the, the area is... Uh, mm-hmm. What I'm trying to say is that I really enjoy smaller museums more and more because they're so quiet. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's what one reason, like, the Hirshhorn, which is on the mall, is just not that popular, um, but they'll have excellent exhibitions. Mm. And so I, I do prefer smaller museums, too, also where the artists can take on the exhibition space without it, like, being about the exhibition space. I mean, that was one of the nice things, actually, about the Guggenheim in New York is that, you know, a lot of people argue that the architecture is really awkward, but the scale of the museum is actually quite small um, and easy no, to I, I, at least the conceive The Guggenheim of. is, is uh, definitely in my top five favorite museums, maybe the first one, it, especially for solo shows. It, I talk about this a lot with uh, about architecture and uh, art, and so a lot of people say, well, the, the floor... Just, just for listeners to know, that the Guggenheim is a museum in New York that is built like a spiral. So you walk down a long spiral, and it really lends itself, in my eyes, to solo exhibitions because you're really chronologically walking through someone's life. You see, they usually mm-hmm. start at the bottom, and you'll see the first steps of an artist before they found their thing. So uh, someone is struggling, and it, the work is derivative. They haven't found their uniqueness yet. And then at some moment, they make a key decision, and you see that happening, and then you see them running with that idea all the way to the top. Um, and it's about a 25-minute walk if you're slowly like, observing it, but maybe some people take an hour. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's a very special architecture that you're really just walking on a single line. There are a few separate rooms, but most museums you get kind of lost. You're like, did I go left or right? Or, um, but that museum... Did you ever see the... Uh, did you ever see the Catlan show there where he like hung every Oh, they, piece they hung all the, the works? The yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. But like hung it from like strings. It was like you were, it was like one giant sculpture from top to bottom. And you were like walking up. It's almost like you were, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, on like a little cherry picker elevator looking at every stage. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good for yeah. narrative, that space. I think another space yeah, that but it, I used it, to it, like that I don't like so much. What you're saying in, that yeah. it's kind of small, but it's pretty big for a solo show. So maybe it's, it's a good, it's a balance. It's not big like the Metropolitan. Mm. So the, the Metropolitan Museum now has a David Hockney exhibition. Um, and it's such a big museum that the Hockney show is kind of crammed into a small wing and it feels small. It's, it's funny. The museum mm. itself is infinite, but the, I think a Hockney show in the Guggenheim would have been much better. Yeah, that's how I feel when I go to Tate Modern. I used to like it, but now the f- way it's organized with the Great Hall and then the smaller galleries is that you never really get to feel like you do at the Guggenheim where you get to understand the gravitas or like the the kind of the whole potential of that artist in their whole life. Yeah. Well, that's um, maybe this is an interesting point. This this uh, the whole artist. So we're so used to if you love movies and you want to see all the movies of one director or listen to read all the novels of one author and etc. It's possible, but to encounter most of the body of work of one artist, it just happens a few times in your life. So it's really, 
I guess that's why people get really upset with museum shows if it's not done right. Yeah, like there's a Carolee Schneeman show that's kind of making the rounds right now. And a lot of people have been, you know, critical, not of the show, not of the work, which has been revived and is excellent, but the way the the show has been curated, or at least the exhibition design is so that it's reverse chronological. So it starts with her newer work and ends with her oldest work. And, you know, the critique is like, well, the newer work's not very good, <laughs> but like, um, <laughs> it's also very confused. It's very confusing because this idea of progressing through the idea is so imperative to understanding how the artist arrived at their in their in their final destination. You know, it's um, a memento that, Benjamin like, Button exhibition. Yeah, yeah, but it, Benjamin Button's a confusing movie to watch, right? Like, anyway, like uh, there is something to the chronology like that works well with the human brain and how we are set up to understand. And it's almost like you're yeah. walking through one idea as it develops. But I am in I favor of, of of trying things. So this is an interesting thing to try, the reverse chronological. Yeah, I mean, of course, there are exhibitions where they just mix it all together. And, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure how well that works either. But, um, you know, or the survey exhibition usually follows a chronology if it's like of a period or something like that or an idea. Um, and, yeah, I guess there are, there's room for like multidimensional <laughs> And stuff. I haven't seen that. Here's yeah. one thing that I, you know, I, I was a, I've been a zero about gravity exhibition We've been talking, where you fly in all dimensions. Well, yeah, and it brings me to the point, you know, of you know, among internet artists, of course, we're always like unsettled by physical space, and so over the years, there have been like countless experiments in like how can we take this museum experience and bring it online. Um, and I've played with that. I created a museum that follows you around in like banner advertisements all over the internet, and I was called the U Museum and it was to be criti- it was it was more of a critical position that I believe the museum uh, is in you it's not a physical space it's like it's a uh, it's kind of also uh, dead in a way um, it's advertising at this point but that besides the point there's been a lot of like sort of exhibitions that have been about um, you know bringing the museum into a virtual reality space or bringing a pre-rendered version of a virtual space into the museum or mixed reality spaces I'm just, I mean, I haven't really reconciled. They never seem to work. I guess I wanted I, to talk through no, like, why they well, don't what work. I, here's my, here's my uh, opinion on the matter. I think a lot of art uh, is best experienced in person, but there's also a lot of art that would be better experienced at home. So if you go to a video art exhibition in a physical space, you keep running into no, movies that are halfway. <laughs> and those would be much better that, as yeah. a simple... Yeah, th- those would be much better as a simple playlist at home uh, with thumbnails and you just start the movie that you want. I just think the three-dimensional mat- metaphor of creating a, a, a WebGL 3D space that you walk through, that's kind of nonsensical. I, I think uh, the internet is much you're better. You're making a great if, point. If the, yeah, so it, it, we make, don't need yeah. to... Yeah. Uh, but, it, it, for example, one of my favorite online exhibitions is a website called The Useless Web. Do you know it? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. No, remind me. Well, it's, um, it's a website that just has links to uh, single-serving sites. It's not even an art exhibition. It's more like a, a collection of goofy websites. But it, the whole website is basically just one button, and it randomly picks out of maybe a list of 100. And so people just click and click and click. And all it is is one button, but I think it's the best online exhibition because it's just so simple. I think 
the internet is just best clicking around. Mm-hmm. So it's like I'm feeling lucky on Google or something. Yeah, or stumble upon or something. And it, a lot of art, uh, I think this magazine now is started a TV channel, uh, art. And they're going to show a lot of video mm-hmm. out there. I think it's much more enjoyable to watch it that way than in an exhibition space. Yeah, and I think you're making a good point, which is that like the media itself, you can't ignore that. You know, you can't separate that from its context. So, like it, to to bring a physical space into a virtual space, you're creating something new. Um, and to to not acknowledge that is a little bit. It, I mean, you can feel that. You feel that as like mm, this is just compromise. It's not really owning. Well, the media, it's the also yeah. Yeah, your computer fan starts kicking in. You're worried that the computer is going to crash. And you're trying to get to the other room, but you're trying to use the cursor keys and you're confused. And it's just a, a I don't know what you would call that now in the, software design, but it's a disaster, basically. Now, there is like one kind of exception to this rule that well, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't finalized my decision on this, but like there's some friends that put together this thing called Demoda which is like a virtual reality museum. And one thing that's interesting about it, I think, is that they started with like the architecture of this museum. Um, and then like in the first exhibition, it's like, it's like we were talking about, it's, we're, you know, what we're being critical of. It's like this kind of like traditional architecture. But the second exhibition they did, they put that same architecture in like an apocaly- apocalyptic zero gravity yeah. environment. Yeah. And what I found interesting about that is the museum itself... Then it gets itself, interesting started to tell if you let yeah, go kind of, of the laws of physics yeah the narrative was shifting and the context was shifting in ways that were not possible in the physical realm uh, which i liked yeah and sometimes yeah, the, you see that i, in I was some, yeah I, I was part of uh, this neat art movement and there was one architect andreas angelidakis who made a lot of second life architecture and exhibitions in second life and uh, one funny anecdote was that he, he would make buildings based on the work of the members of Neen. So I had a website with Cloud, so he made a cloud building. And for somebody else, he made a building based on their clothing and etc. And he, you had to buy land in Second Life. I don't know if you remember Second Life or if you used it. Oh, yeah, of course. It's a terrible place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so he had his plot of land and he built it, he built a giant pink tower in the... All the neighbors complained because they wanted a white picket fence neighborhood with traditional houses and they were kicking him out or they were petitioning to get him to move. Right, right, right. Yeah, and like probably because they wanted to have more uh, deviant sex parties. It was distracting them from their bestiality. Second yeah. Life is just like... Yeah, the furry, the furry I orgy. Second Life, I think, is one of the... Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's in style again because it's so bad. Um, like it's like some kind of like <laughs> it's uh, kind of beautiful and terrible yeah. at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about that in the last yeah, episode, it, the aging of aesthetics. So it'll come back. Yeah. No, it's ugly. It's the ugliest. I mean, and I can remember it was around too long. Like, you know, people knew it was bad. It was it was out of date very quickly. And it was, it would always like the performance never got good. The computers got faster, but it always stayed slow. It was still, anyway, I yeah. just like hated it so much. It was a little bit like but cryptocurrency, do, do though, because I can remember that, people uh, were speculating. Do you think that uh, museums are essentially gatekeepers? So it, that one of the roles it serves is. So, this is if the point probably we have to talk about, and, yeah. Yeah, but if you go to a city, let's say you're visiting Ireland and you're in Dublin and. 
you have yeah. about three hours and you're like, oh, I'd like to see what kind of art is made in Ireland. You'll probably go to the museum and not to galleries because there's a certain uh, level of quality that... And the, the galleries are more open to new things. They can respond quicker and, and be more spontaneous. But mm -hmm. if you only have three hours, you'll probably still go to a museum. It's funny you say that because when I was younger, I would I would go to a new city and then I would get one of like a, a Time Out magazine or a gallery guide and then I'd do like a tour of all the galleries. Certainly, like my first trips to New York were okay. always like it was Deitch projects above all else, and then like all these other little galleries like I would go check out. But then so in recent were years, too historical? the museum. Well, I don't know. I don't know what's changed. I'm trying to unpack it live with you right now. But like in recent years now, I will go to a museum first and foremost because I feel like their editorial voice is ahead often of the private gallery spaces. And that yeah, can just be that private of, galleries of have gotten really interest, boring. You think... Yeah. yeah, there was a time in the mid-aughts that were, I don't know if you remember, like in New York especially, where the private galleries or the commercial galleries were doing really experimental crazy stuff, like Deitch Projects being kind of the best example of that at the time. Yeah, I, I think it was that the, the markets kind of failed in the 90s, and so they just had to figure out showing crazy stuff because they couldn't sell stuff anyway. <laughs> right, right. But it let, I mean, so that was where the cool stuff was happening. These days I feel like I'm more no. likely to see something cool at a museum, but I could, you know, I, I mean, the, some of the commissions have been very interesting in recent years. I, I could just be out of touch, though. I mean, there's probably some cool stuff happening. I'm just old. It's like yeah. listening to, I'm listening to soft rock because I don't know <laughs> what's good. What's yeah, yeah, anymore. yeah. There's, there's one thing that, uh, the, the idea that galleries and museums, both, but just these rooms without furniture that are very attractive to me. Uh, I just really like rooms without furniture. I don't know why. And, um, there's a church-like mm -hmm. uh, feeling, yeah. And that museum aesthetic, of course, as we know, is like um, now transcended the museum, and so you can walk walk into a clothing store and it looks like a museum. It's a it's a room without furniture and barely. Yeah, any and clothes. everything's curated. Right. Yeah, there's coffee yeah. shops here in Toronto. There's even like yeah, hairdressers yeah, where now, it's like a single now, like, chair a playlist and a white is room. curated, or a hairdresser is curating your look, or <laughs> yeah. everybody's a curator now. I think before yeah, I you mean, were we a makeup artist and now you're a makeup curator. Yeah, and we should probably reference that that's, there was a specific kind of change that happened. And there's there's writing about this, and but I won't, you know, rather than name drop, but like there was a shift that happened historically from the artist to the curator, where the curator became the celebrity. I think like the best example of this that most people would cite would be like Hansel Burke Oberst, Ulrich, o Ulrich Oberst, where he's like <laughs> more important than Cobra, the artist. Cobra. Yeah, uh, 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 like the most. I mean, how could someone get so famous with such a difficult to pronounce name? <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, like this idea that Olaf you should. Elias. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Um, but you know, basically, that you put out a book, um, you have your opinion. It's the the op ed, uh, the museum as opinion editorial uh, was sort of pioneered by these types of people, and they sort of subsumed the role of the artist. So. No longer the artist gesture became the curatorial gesture, and then the big name curators, of course, have circulated through different museums. Of course, I mentioned HUO, which is the short form, <laughs> an easier way to say it. Uh, Hans's name is that Serpentine and like Serpentine and his name go together, right? There's you're not going to be able to separate the two, and if it, when he leaves, it'll be a big drama. Uh, yeah, I think I think kind of yeah, a lot of people didn't know about the Serpentine before he went there. 
Yeah, exactly. And there, but the, the, so I know a little bit about the inside politics of these places, as do you. And you know that these moves happen and they're kind of like a big deal. But there are, there's always negotiations like basketball players. It's like, is. Yeah, it's like know, is, fashion are, houses. Like Graf Simmons moves to another house. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Is like Michael Jordan going to get traded to, you know, uh, you know, the Bulls? I don't, you know, yes, he did get traded. But anyway, like there's these kinds yeah. of trade rumors happening all the time. So, and then the editorial then, uh, voice is so important one, one to the thing museum. That, one thing, um, I mean, I'm, I'm feeling very happy now that I have this museum show. Who knows what's going on next year? And maybe it all tumbles down. But when you start out as an artist, uh, and even people who are not artists can go to a museum and feel very excluded. The, the, the opposite of feeling empowered because it's this gigantic institution with all these highly educated and rich people and how can I have a voice here and, um, and the when the internet came mm. along it's kind of the anti-museum it's uh, there's no gatekeepers you have to find your own way and uh, that that was really empowering to me yeah yeah hence the institutional critique which has like you know probably over occupied the art dialogue because I don't think the general public really cares that much about it um Well, I, I, I feel like I, I, I don't think uh, anyone ever gave me uh, it, uh, looked at my work that way. But all my websites and uh, BYOB and everything all together was institutional critique. But I wasn't trying to point a finger at what's wrong. But I was trying to offer another an, an alternative. Another alternative. Yeah, and it was yeah, really so funny. I, I, I felt like it's more useful to offer an alternative than to complain. Yeah, and I thought the same thing, but from a different point of view. So just a little bit of insight, though. Like, I had my first museum exhibition, my, fir and my, my first and only solo museum exhibition when I was, like, when I just finished grad school. So I was, like, 26 years old. And I've when never, you were, I've when never you had... seven years old. <laughs> <laughs> the, and so, like, it Come always Come on, Jeremy, very, you got a museum show to do. Stop playing with those toys. <laughs> exactly. So the museum actually never seemed like that difficult to exhibit okay. in which no I, I should deal. count myself lucky but that said yeah it i know it is a big deal but that said i really didn't like it um because i was making video as you said earlier and i could tell that the audience was really uncomfortable watching video in that context and i was uncomfortable installing it right in that context and i'd be like why am i doing this this doesn't make any sense in this yeah. context and so yeah. the internet always made a lot of sense to me i was like why would i want to be in this dark room behind black velvet curtains when I could be like out in the, I'd rather be out in the big white space with all the lights or I'd rather yeah. be, that's not going to work for this video though. I'd rather be I, in like I, their living room. Yeah. I do want to say there's a big difference between video art and moving images or generative moving images that function more like something to stare at and doesn't have a beginning or an ending. I, I do think those kind of moving images do just fine in a museum. If it's something that, You, you can walk past and walk back and it doesn't matter at what point in time you encounter the work. I think that's fine. Yeah, it's more so problematic if, if you yeah. see a lot of works that are 20 minutes and have a beginning and ending. Yeah, of course. And when I was, that, when I was doing that stuff, my philosophy was that every frame of the video uh, had to be you know, evidence of the entire work. That was, like my, that was what I would always quote uh, saying. Um, but then I didn't want to make that type of video, so you know, because I wanted to be. A what about the simple? Uh, what about a simple interface uh, that there's a, a, a red stripe under every video, and you see how far it's along, and there's a reset button that if you're the only one in the room, you can go to the beginning of the video, like YouTube for museums or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Well, the, the problem yeah, with that scro- would be basically that a scroll bar. The museum hates the frame, right? The, they hate yeah. the artifice. They hates it hates itself. The museum hates itself. I guess is the you know, and so the museum <laughs> would hate to inter- interfere with itself because it's already self loathing, you know, by design. Um, from out the outside, well, it loves I guess itself. you. But once I, it get, when, I, I, it would be a little complicated to make, but you could make something that detects how many people are in the video room, and if only one person is there, it it would start over. Mm, I see what you're saying, but again, the artist would, you know, that that has to be that would be considered an artistic intervention, and again, the museum would that would be corrupting, <laughs> and like this is this gets into the delicacy, the delicate kind of art of I think uh, museum I think, presentation uh, and, and I exhibition think exhibitions, design. yeah, yeah. In, in my opinion, like, they should just do what's best for the the final result. Okay, but one word then, didactic, right? Like <laughs> the, the most controversial yeah, word jogging. in music. Yeah, the most co- controversial word in, in, in mix, exhibition design. Like how should we talk about the work on the wall that the work is that's presented? That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, I, and so I, that, I, that's a big, you know, these little things matter. It's funny. I think a lot of academics will can talk about this their whole lifetime, and museum visitors just go along. It's like, oh, oh, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> it, right, it, right, right. It, it remind it, it reminds me of all the discussion around Apple products and when people yell and scream about details, and regular people are like, oh yeah, that's fine. Oh, that's good. Yeah, okay, I like that. There's no home button. Okay, nice. Right, like I think every artist that I know reads the didactics and also the like the name tags and all the details of the work very closely. They even inspect the frame. Like almost all my art friends, we look at the back of the work. <laughs> like if it's if there's a way yeah. to see every detail how it was made or whatever, or you can figure out what materials are there, you're going to do that. But I don't think the average uh, person walking by the work because I think they have three seconds that they spend on the work uh, is doing that. So it's this is where it gets into like. Yeah, the art art world nerdery, or you know, what we think is important yeah. is actually not important at all. Yeah, and I I will say this that uh, I do foresee a future where people have to work less. I hope so, and I hope that the world will be filled with people doing music and sports and art, so that we have lots of stadiums and concert halls and museums. And, and I could imagine that being what are you going to do when the machines do everything? So maybe then a lot well, of people, yeah. there would be a lot of museums. I'd be remiss if I didn't say, uh, you know, throw one rock at the museum, you know, based on my fluxus roots, which is that like, not all art or not all of human experience needs to be collected and, and preserved. I would just want to put this argument out there that no. some things were meant to disappear. Well, there could be lots of theaters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, theater, and a lot of museums have evolved this way, actually, and I think it's worth talking about that the museum has evolved from this storehouse of dead history to become a, a place for living community and for performance spaces and for um, non, you know, even just to have a meal. You know, the museum has become like sort of, and it's trying to position itself it as serves, like an intellectual yeah. hub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and it, it serves many roles. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, you know, one place I see museums going that's really exciting. And I know, you know, for example, when the new MoMA opened in New York, right, the redesign, they were one of the first museums to actually create a space 
that was not for exhibition, but was for performance, that was not like a stage presentation, that was for performance art. And it took, like, how long did that take, right? But now that's considered like, you know, one of their most activated and successful spaces, right? We all know the Marina Abramovic piece that made that space famous, you know, where she, you know, stares at you from across the table. Yeah. The people lined up for hours to have that experience, right? But that's never going to be it's exist also funny, in that space again. I was... It's it's interesting that you mention this because if if you go from the museum being an archive to the museum being a place for experiences, like that's kind of a shift. Uh, mm-hmm. it, the Guggenheim had a a presentation of um, Tina Segal and and also um, I'm blanking on the name uh, James Turrell, but both were more like taking the whole museum as one big experience and very. Uh, uh, a non-material, non-object-based experience. One focusing on light and the other one focusing on performance. Both of those were the most attended exhibitions in the history of the Guggenheim. So it seems that there is a really large audience. And the the other thing, uh, I was speaking to the museum director here in, in Tawada, who also works in a museum in Tokyo, he says it's so expensive to put together a painting exhibition. It's basically mm. impossible because the paintings are getting more and more valuable. They wanted to do a, a, a Malevich exhibition and they wanted to lend, uh, borrow all these Malevich paintings from the Stalic Museum. And because the market for painting keeps going up, the insurance keeps going up. So the longer you wait, it's get. They did another exhibition where they exhibited a, a Jeff Koons sculpture. Uh, it's a hanging heart. It's like a, a locket, locket on a necklace, but gigantic. Um... The thing is super heavy, and you can't really... Normally, you can put a sculpture on its feet. A sculpture has feet of some kind. But this is a hanging sculpture, and you can't really hold it anywhere. So you have to uh, hire Jeff Koons-approved engineers that have to fly business class, etc. And then hang the... So to exhibit that work for a month cost about 300000 US dollars. You don't even right, own the right, work. It's then. insane. So it yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it seems inevitable that museums are going to focus on performance and video. If if the market keeps going up, who can afford to do that? Yeah, no. So I think you're, what you're seeing in museums change to is is more as these cultural hubs. And so the other thing that they've invested in heavily, and if this is boring to our listeners, I apologize. But you're you're going to see this in your museums as they're if also it's boring, shifting just radically. Turn it off. It's true, radically towards education and like community events that are not, you might not even have considered art previously, like, um, like the Creative Time Conference is hosted here at a museum, um, right? And uh, so social issues are being discussed in within a museum context. And it's all kinds of intersectional kind of education is happening there, which you might have considered like the role of libraries or universities to have had in the past. And maybe libraries are kind of dancing around this because they're trying to get into art now. Um, but it's because there's a missing piece in cities, which is like, how do we talk about culture? Right. And I think that's where museums yeah. shine is when they're able to like and, and capture I think, kind of a cultural moment. Yeah. I think one thing that happens whenever there's change in the model of a museum, then uh, some people will be excited and some people are disappointed. But I think we have to wrap our brains around that there are more and more museums so that each museum can be very different. I think the number mm. of museums, I don't have the statistics, but I'm pretty sure that yeah. they're growing exponentially. And there's a lot of well, private a fu- museums a f- being added. Yeah. So, so yeah, we have to accept that I, some museums are for you was- and some museums are for, for me. 
Yeah, there's like a new, there's a funny museum story that I have of a new kind of museum that's opening. Um, I was talking to a friend about because um, it was supposed to go in one city and then that city turned it down and then it was supposed to be somewhere else. And it, but it's this uh, this museum of the narrative or the narrative museum, which is like oh, the George, George Lucas's. Lucas's. <laughs> yeah, which is going to yeah. be in LA. <laughs> if you see the museum design, yeah. it looks like an upside down, um, like a sneaker or something, a running shoe. And uh, George Lucas put a billion dollars of his own money. That's what they advertise on the website. I'll put it in the show notes. It's hilarious. It's like, it's like one of the reasons to visit. George Lucas put in over a billion dollars. <laughs> but it's like yeah. almost like a museum to himself is what everyone's worried about, right? And Marina Abramovic wanted to open this performance art museum, which has now been canceled just outside New York. There is this like um, race for rich people to open their own museums. Um, but that actually is not necessarily a new idea. The Barnes collection that I mentioned earlier was a, a private well, museum. Well, the Guggenheim a lot of rich people, yeah. The yeah, food collection. Of and, and so, uh, I mean, it, the, the, the it whole, might, it, it's, it's very funny when artists, when artists are worried about rich people being connected to art. And then if you look at art history, it's like, well, that's been happening about 20,000 years. The pharaohs were <laughs> yeah, doing exactly. it. The Egyptians right. were doing it. The Greek, the Romans, and uh, well, big surprise! It, it, I, one of the older museum directors from the Stalik was talking to, and he had this saying: "That art goes where money flows." Mm. Yeah, I think it's also people yeah, want so what they it, can't have. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh, I spent my life being practical, and I earned all this money. Um, I know, like, I wish I had, I wish I could reclaim my youth and like experience meaningfulness. I, I'll open a museum, right? And then I can be, I can be important again and people will love me and I won't just be seen as yeah. this like evil <laughs> capitalist. Anyway. There's also Paul Allen from Microsoft <laughs> you has can a buy museum anything, of pop apparently. culture anyway. in uh, Paul Allen uh, of Microsoft has a museum of pop culture in Seattle. Christina went there and it's uh, all mm. well, one thing a we Star would be, Trek museum. Oh really? Because the other, you know, yeah, thing they in America, have they have the, the, the board cube and like all these kind of props. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we haven't talked about so all. So if you're of wondering these, like, what's the future uh, of museums in, in Northern California, uh, it's going to be a right, lot of right, Star right. Trek. Right, it's going to be museums to all kinds of random stuff, like you know, toenail museum or whatever. anyway. There's like, <laughs> of course, we haven't talked about like the long, <laughs> like tale of different crappy museums that are out there. We've been mostly focused on art museums. Um, and there are oh, good yeah, science great museums. Experience at the Outsider Art Museum. Outsider Art Museum, which is absolute garbage. Don't ever go there. You know, so it's <laughs> like there are there are, there are museum as a concept is is kind of always changing, and some people make it suit uh, their own needs, uh, including I would say yeah. like private citizens that you know just want to put their stuff somewhere. <laughs> And it's weird sometimes it is, when those it is worlds intersect. Interesting. I know there's this, yeah. Yeah. It is well, interesting that an, we, we sort of need this concrete shell around objects to give them meaning, that we just need to blur out the city for 20 minutes, and then you have to be like, oh, I never saw that the Borg cube was made that way. That's really interesting. And if you watch it on TV, you won't notice? Or I don't know. Does, does that make any sense that you need these walls no, it, to it, close? It does. I give, the same way a church needed yeah. to close out the daily life of a city? So I give this artist, my artist talk, my classic art, artist presentation, but I also have like a, a performance I do at this where I put um, a little museum on my hand 
And I, and the way I do that is like, I just add little white cubes onto my fingers in augmented reality. And the, the point I make is like, if I put my work on these little plinths, these aren't white cubes, they're like plinths, uh, which are little, you know, podiums for art. If I do that, then it's important. It's more important, right? Like, but museums are very good at like framing things as important. Um, and they do that through various visual codes and spatial codes. Um, there's nothing more important than an empty room with a single, you know, uh, single item. Uh, and of course, there's all these stories. Of course, you always read in the tabloids like uh, janitor mistakes uh, artwork as garbage, <laughs> puts in trash or whatever. Um, but like the museum does have this, still have this power to elevate almost any object and elevate um, in sometimes in good ways and sometimes in bad. Yeah, th there's also something about uh, long-term collecting, like the Metropolitan Museum, where you're collecting 5,000 years of history. And uh, it, the fact that that means you have to make choices. So that's the interesting part of a museum, that you have to say, well, this goes in the vault and that doesn't. <clears throat> well, that's true. Like, so the Smithsonian is another great example where, like, I think only 1% of the collection is ever on display. And so... You know, there's also a lot of, you know, one of my favorite artists is, um, uh, oh God, what's his name now? <laughs> Blank his name, maybe you can help me. Where, where he, re, he, basically what he does is he used to, or he doesn't do this anymore, but his early career was about um, Fred Wilson. He would go into the basements of um, museums, specifically smaller city museums in the South. And he would take the stuff out of storage that they didn't want to be seen, right? Like, and he'd recontextualize that with the contemporary collections to point out colonial histories or, you know, political intersections that the museum had previously promoted but no longer wanted to promote. So the act of curating became like an artwork in that sense, but curating the the archive or the so-called permanent collection, the the you know the ninety percent of the museum collection you don't see. And I think that that was I really loved that work because it made the yeah. voice of the museum that we were talking about earlier visible in the, as an artwork. I, I'm, I, I have this idea for an exhibition. I hope I can do it one day. Show broken new media installations. Like go to all the uh, warehouses of museums, all the archives, and find everything that's not working anymore and exhibit them as sculptures. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like the, the broken artworks would be a hilarious show. <laughs> That's a good idea. Uh, <laughs> yeah. why, can't, why hasn't that been done? That sounds great. Yeah. They're always yeah. trying to cover up. You know, have you, you've seen the restoration that goes into the back offices. Like there's always like some painting under reconstruction or something. You know, they're like gently brushing. I've always been a fan H of just Humans are work. so funny. Like if he, someone cut it. I just think humans 19, are very funny. Yeah, like someone vomited on it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah a friend but, of mine. But so if, it, if you would, here in, if you would come from another planet and be like, well, there's these certain people that can <laughs> apply pigment on this, in a special way on this cotton uh, cloth, and then people get really excited <laughs> about it, and, but then only the, the wealthy ones who kick out the poor ones can uh, hold on to the painting, but then they get so wealthy that they give it back, but then it gets broken, and then the experts have to repair it, and people are excited about it because it's so old. Right, right, it's right. So weird. Like I, I, <laughs> I went to I went to school with a guy who got into a lot of trouble because while he was in school, he would go into museums. Or I didn't go to school with him. I just knew him while I was in school, and he would throw up on the paintings uh, intentionally. <laughs> he needed attention. 
Well, he got yeah he he got banned from the museum and then and then he just started dressing up in drag and going into the museum like he'd put on different persona characters and and continued to vomit. Anyway, uh, there is a history of people going in and damaging um, artworks in museums, but I think that it's important that I don't know. I've always felt like why did they why do they restore the work after that? And I think it's because they don't want to just like create these mini celebrities out of the people it's like a you know you don't if if someone murders someone it's not good to give them a lot of press or whatever but like you don't want to make them a hero at the same time it's like there are these weird lines inside museums it always makes me think like where you know where there's the tape on the floor like that the public's only allowed to get so close uh to what well that that again is is the long timeline like if if someone gets close to a painting once it's not a problem but if it's a hundred thousand people a year that rub the lo- Mona Lisa's nose then at some point there's no nose anymore mm-hmm. yeah you're right but you can't even see the Mona Lisa anymore really because when you see it you just see a crowd of people with cameras um, <laughs> and, you know. and like seven, 17 inches of glass in front of it yeah yeah it's like not re- it doesn't really exist anymore anyway would be my argument I, like, I do remember that as, as a child asking my parents why is the Mona Lisa so important <laughs> Well, and the other thing that's happening now is that, um, like, Google and these companies, they're scanning these. So they're, they're taking that problem. They're saying, hmm, I know what we could do. We could scan it, like, with a micron microscope camera thing, whatever. And, like, then people could, like, observe it right down to the atomic level and spin it around in 3D and put it. And we'll put so we're going to put it on a computer. <laughs> and then we get, you know, so we're all the way 100% back to the shitty Internet Museum again. And the problem with museums yeah, generally that, being overcrowded. That's hard. That doesn't translate. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. it's really funny because you know, museums it, it, have become victims of this their own importance. It's it's kind of binary. It's very much like restaurants. That some museums are overcrowded and some are completely empty. Yeah, and it depends on that when you go to them. Like pro tip, you yeah. know, go during the middle of the week, not yeah. on the free. Pro night. tip: don't have a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't have a job. It's true. Yeah, exactly. Artists usually get to yeah. see museums. Like you and I, if I travel, I always go to a museum in the middle of the week, and it's like just me and the whole museum. Yeah, but also, it, you know, that's okay for certain museums. But the the Van Gogh Museum or the MoMA, it doesn't matter if it's Tuesday morning or Friday afternoon. It's always right. busy. Yeah, right, right, right. Anyway, we're probably a little bit over time, but there's still more to talk about on museums. Um, you have a field recording from a museum. Oh, and we didn't have any ads this week. Uh, a museum could have advertised. I don't know so why they didn't. So buy some mugs. Goodpointspodcast.com. And we're waiting. Yeah. Hey, MoMA, you've got a store. We've got a store. <laughs> MoMA should be showing. <laughs> hey, come buy some buy some mugs in our store and then have them in your store. Be, I think it would be a bigger privilege, by the way. We didn't even talk about gift shops and museums, but... I've been trying to get some artworks into the MCA uh, Chicago gift shop as like an exhibition space. And it's really hard. And I, I'll explain it in another episode. Uh, but it's it's a really interesting problem. Um, Wait, we'll do, that a, said, we'll do a, a, a merch episode. We'll do an episode about yeah, it's, and it's, multiples. It's hard for a bunch of reasons. And, yeah. 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 yeah, okay, yeah like that's a good uh, teaser involved. for the next episode. <laughs> okay. Okay. Retail. Artist retail. That's coming up soon. Anyway, send yeah. in your ads. Um, and we have a field recording from a museum. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah. So uh, there was the opening of uh, Laura Owens, a painter at the Whitney Museum. And she shows with a gallery called Gavin Brown. And they had a space in LA and uh, the neighborhood gentrified really quickly and 
I'm not sure on the details if the gallery was working together with real estate developers or if it was a coincidence, but now they moved to Harlem in the uh, Upper East in New York, and the neighborhood is really worried about their rents going up and being priced out of their neighborhood. So the gallery, the museum show opened, and there was a large group of protesters outside and about three or four protesters inside the exhibition. Uh, and people were attending the opening like normal, and no one there wanted to kick them out, but at the same time it was really awkward because they were shouting really loud and saying their lives were being destroyed by the, this artist and this gallerist. So that's the recording. Mm, interesting. I love it when uh, politics rub up against each other. So gentrification, museums, <laughs> politics, uh, and aesthetics. It's all there. It's on. All in. Yeah. Listen to that. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, enjoy the sound of protest. Bye, everyone. Send in your field recordings. Bye-bye. So, Gavin Brown. Bye. So, Gavin Brown. Listen here. Listen here. 